turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend producing, Dave King engineering in the Portland area, Pedro Bartez engineering and producing in Seattle. Today I'm looking forward to a conversation with Thomas Jipping. He's senior legal fellow for the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. We'll talk about the Supreme Court and uh, the new code of ethics they recently announced after criticism that they are not... Uh, held accountable to any ethical standard, which is uh, patently false. Anyway, we'll talk with him about that and efforts to control the Supreme Court by members of Congress. And if you're in the Portland area, we'll also talk with Matt Dodds. He's the new executive director for the Union Gospel Mission here in Portland. We'll uh, give you an opportunity to learn a bit more about him and the direction that this ministry is likely to go in the days ahead. But first, we'll take a look at some of the day's news. Well, every December seemingly has a deadline on Capitol Hill to impeach the president, to fund the government, to avoid the fiscal cliff, to raise the debt ceiling, to approve a payroll tax cut, to pass tax reform, to allow drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, to pass Obamacare, to undo Obamacare. But things are a bit different uh, around uh, Capitol Hill this December. Chad Pergram from Fox News points out, that there's not uh, no single sweeping issue that's consuming Congress. There are lots of things to do. In fact, big things, which um, we'll mention in a moment. But the feeling this Christmas at the Capitol is different. No government shutdown is looming. Talk to um, us about that in January and February. And while Congress has faced concrete deadlines before, there's no absolute drop dead date to complete anything, except there is a cutoff point. It's the same as every other year. December 25th. Lawmakers have three weeks to handle lots of things. Whether or not they handle them well is another matter. But it's unclear if they'll uh, crank them uh, through in these, you know, next couple of weeks. And that's why there's a potential for Congress to linger in Washington and maybe, just maybe, still slam into that December 25th deadline. Uh, Well, we'll start with the impeachment. The House is not going to impeach President Biden before Christmas. You might remember that December is kind of impeachment month on Capitol Hill. The House impeached President Clinton on December 19th, 1998, for obstructing justice and lying about his affair with Monica Lewinsky. The House impeached former President Trump the first time on December 18th, 2019, for abusing his power and obstructing justice as he as it pertained to Ukraine. There's something of a pattern. While those votes were actual resolutions to impeach the president, House Speaker Mike Johnson is just pushing a plan to formalize an impeachment inquiry. Uh, The goal is to pass the impeachment probe resolution next week. Before Christmas. Well, House Republicans have nibbled around the edges of impeachment for months, but the House never adopted a measure officially authorizing an impeachment. It was an inquiry. Well, now we're being stonewalled by the White House, being there uh, preventing at least two or three Department of Justice witnesses from coming forward, uh, Speaker Johnson said. So a formal impeachment inquiry vote on the floor will allow us to take it to the next necessary step. And I think it's something we have to do at this juncture. So no impeachment, but 
they'll move forward. Plus, Johnson needs to notch a political and legislative win. After all, he's the new guy. Johnson hasn't uh, had much to crow about since his first uh, a clasp of the speaker's gavel back in October. He quickly passed a bill to boost Israel in its fight against Hamas. Uh, but since then, Johnson has provided over a House majority that encountered multiple stumbles in efforts to pass their own spending bills. The highlight of Johnson's short tenure may have been the expulsion of former Representative George Santos out of New York, which Johnson and other Republican leaders opposed. But impeachment could boost the GOP, especially as Congress stares at the possibility of dual government shutdowns over the winter. Uh, If it goes to the floor, we're going to pass it. There's no question. House Majority Whip Tom Emmer, the Republican out of Minnesota, said about an impeachment inquiry vote. Well, it's about the math. Republicans can only lose three votes on their um, on their side and prevail and still open an impeachment investigation. For months, moderates resisted an impeachment vote. Former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, he initiated an impeachment inquiry without an official vote because he never had the votes. Also, McCarthy needed to do something to move the needle on his side of the aisle when GOP spending bills started stalling on the floor and conservatives grew restless over his debt ceiling pact with President Biden. But vote Votes to potentially launch an impeachment inquiry began to fall into place over the past few weeks. House Republicans believe things changed over Thanksgiving after lawmakers were marooned in Washington for nearly 11 consecutive weeks since last summer. They met people in uh, Walmart and people on Main Street and they're saying things like um, when in the world did the Bidens do uh, uh, what in the world did the Bidens do to receive millions and millions of dollars from our enemies around the world? And did they not pay taxes on it? So they heard from their constituents. The House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer says Democrats accuse Republicans of a political diversion ahead of the election year. This is all part of a phony effort to extreme MAGA or rather by extreme MAGA Republicans to distract the American people because uh, they have no track record. Record of accomplishments, House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries says. But impeachment isn't what it uh, what is most vexing and uh, too many on Capitol Hill this December. There are other issues. Major issues loom over passing the annual defense budget bill. More on that momentarily. But it faces a dispute over declassifying some information related to unidentified aerial phenomena. Uh, renewing the foreign surveillance counterterrorism program known as FISA. And then there's the big one. President Biden's international aid package for Israel, Ukraine and Taiwan all wrapped in one ribbon. The status of that bill is much harder to read because there's no hard deadline except Christmas and the end of the year. That's also coming. And then um, when the focus pivots in January to averting a government shutdown to some, it would be hard to see Congress leaving town before the holiday without addressing Israel and Ukraine. Republicans insist that Democrats attach a robust border security plan to that package. However, Republicans aren't even in agreement on what those border provisions might look like. But if the plan blows up, Republicans hope to blame Democrats who are getting hammered politically for not tackling the border. Oh, it's complicated. White House Budget Director Shalanda Young sent a, an urgent letter to lawmakers on Monday saying Congress was about to kneecap Ukraine by not passing the aid. Talks over the border went sideways in recent days, perhaps scuttling the supplemental spending plan. And if Congress doesn't pass the inter- international aid bill, you can bet Vladimir Putin is watching. Hamas is watching. Iran, President Xi, North Korea, 
All of our adversaries are watching. They're watching closely, said Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. If Congress fails to defend democracy in its hour of need because of border policies inspired by Donald Trump, and of course they have to throw him in there, he's out of office and uh, has... uh, No say. Or Stephen Miller, the judgment of history will be harsh indeed, Schumer points out. But Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell lashed his colleagues across the aisle. Democrats appear to be uh, hell-bent on exhausting every half-baked idea before they get serious about actually fixing our border. Senate Republicans know that national security begins with border security, and we've made it crystal clear that in order to pass the Senate, any measure we take up in the coming days must include serious policy changes designed to get the Biden administration's border crisis under control. So it's pretty unclear if the fight over the border and the international aid package could keep Congress here close to Christmas this year, entering the special legislative pantheon of five alarm fires, which have um, skewered, well, up another holiday season on Capitol Hill. But things are a little different around the Capitol this December. And even if Congress abandons Washington without finishing everything, No one will be celebrating, but that's just the way it is in Washington. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You are listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later in the program, a conversation with Thomas Jipping, Senior Legal Fellow for the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies on uh, whether or not the U.S. Supreme Court needs a code of ethics or if there is one already uh, in place. That's uh, coming up. Well, Senator Tommy Tuberville said Tuesday, that's today, he'll release his hold on military promotions, effectively ending his months-long effort to pressure the Pentagon into changing its abortion policy. It was a valiant effort. In February, Tuberville initially blocked the Senate votes from moving forward over the Pentagon's new abortion leave policy that gave troops access to abortion services while on duty. For the past uh, nearly 10 months, the Alabama Republican delayed the confirmation of more than 400 military nominees, uh, despite bipartisan pressure. In a closed-door meeting on Capitol Hill, he reportedly agreed with Senators Dan Sullivan and Joni Ernst uh, their plan to release his hold on the military promotions for three-star officers and below, which make up the majority of the nominees. About 11 nominations for four-star generals and officers remain under the hold for the time being. I'm releasing everybody. I still got a hold, I think, on 11 four-star generals. Everybody else is completely released from me, Tuberville told reporters on Tuesday. But other than that, it's over. Well, uh, after announcing the news, the lawmaker added he was disappointed that the abortion policy wasn't changed. We saw some success. We didn't get as much out of it as we wanted, Tuberville said. The only opportunity you got to get people on the left up here to listen to you in the minority is to put a hold on something that is important to them. He opened his eyes just a little bit. We didn't get the win uh, that we wanted. We're still uh, we still have a bad policy. The decision to release the holes comes as Democrats were planning to hold a vote on changing the Senate rules in order to advance the military confirmations, which prompted the Senate GOP conference to convince Tuberville to change his strategy. The policy, which was enacted last year after the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade, allowed service members to receive reimbursements for traveling to abortion clinics. Republican Representative Pat McHenry won't seek re-election as congressional exits um, expand. 37 members of Congress have announced that they won't seek re-election in 2024, and that's a pretty big number. 
Um, Representative Patrick McHenry announced uh, today that he will not seek his reelection, once again expanding that coming congressional exit. Uh, McHenry said he's uh, he's going to finish out the remainder of his term. The Republican is a close ally of former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. He served as interim speaker in the time between McCarthy's ouster and the election of Speaker Mike Johnson. This is not a decision I come to lightly, but I believe there is a season for everything. And for me, this season has come to an end. McHenry said in his statement. Statement. Past, present and future. The House of Representatives is the center of our American Republic through good and bad during the highest of days and the lowest. And from proud to infamous times, the House is the venue for our nation's disagreements bound up in our hopes for a better tomorrow. It is truly a special place. And as an American, my service here is undoubtedly my proudest End quote. The North Carolina congressman who has served since 2005 in the 37th member of the uh, of Congress to announce that he will not be seeking reelection will make a significant difference in the uh, in Congress and in the election of 2024. Well, the IRS whistleblowers who allege the federal investigation into Hunter Biden has been influenced by politics are testifying before the House Ways and Means Committee behind closed doors today. Gary Shapley, who led the IRS portion of the Hunter Biden probe, and Joseph Ziegler, a 13-year special agent within the IRS Criminal Investigation Division, uh, sat before a closed-door hearing during the committee's executive session early this morning. The whistleblowers uh, were set to discuss information protected under Internal Revenue Code 6103, according to the committee, meaning the information is related to confidentiality of tax returns. Shapley and Ziegler, uh, they've alleged political influence surrounding prosecutorial decisions throughout the Hunter Biden investigation, which began in 2018. Shapley has said that uh, decisions at every stage of the of the probe were made that had the effect of benefiting the subject of the investigation. Zegler, for his part, has said that Hunter Biden should have been charged with a tax felony and not only the tax misdemeanor charge and that communications and text messages reviewed by investigators may have may be a contradiction of what President Biden was saying about not being involved in Hunter's overseas business dealings. Those hearings will continue. And again, they will play a role in whether or not a formal request for an impeachment moves forward. Meanwhile, the president made a statement that has many raising eyebrows. The president said he's not sure he would seek reelection if Trump was not on the ballot for the Republicans. This came out of Weston, Massachusetts. The U.S. president said on Tuesday that he's not sure he would be seeking reelection if we were not facing uh, Republican Donald Trump. And this is a direct quote. If Trump wasn't running, I'm not sure I'd be running. He was uh, speaking at a fundraiser event uh, for his 2024 campaign outside Boston. We cannot let him win, he went on to say. Well, that, of course, has raised many questions among observers on both sides of the aisle. Meanwhile, the media panic over a possible Trump second term is growing with warnings of dictatorship and dystopia. By the way, the president, uh, the former president, will be sitting down for an interview on Hannity uh, later tonight. Uh, The GOP primary is uh, coming up um, in what? uh, Six weeks, Uh, six weeks till the caucuses, I should say. Uh, And there will be a GOP primary debate in um, Alabama on Wednesday. There will be four attendees. It's whittled down to four. Needless to say, former President Trump will not be a part of that. He's going to hold a fundraiser in Florida on Wednesday night at the same time that the uh, four GOP um, 
uh, front runners, if you can put it that way, will be in debate in Alabama at Alabama University. So all of that is coming up. All of that said, there's been a spree of alarmist coverage from major media outlets about a possible second Donald Trump presidency in recent days with stark warnings about the potential end of American democracy and even a dictatorship in the works. The 2024 uh, Republican frontrunner is uh, matching up strongly with President Biden, who now says he wouldn't be running at all or perhaps wouldn't if uh, Trump were not running. In a recent survey that shows him, Donald Trump effectively tied or leading the man who vanquished him in 2020 and worried news outlets aren't waiting for the calendar to flip to panic about what it could mean if he returned to office. The Atlantic launched a special edition of the magazine on Monday about the consequences if Trump wins and perhaps its starkest stance yet against the former president. On a red cover, the magazine lists 24 pieces from its writers and contributors for the special edition that warns of the great and extreme consequences if former President Trump were to win in 2024, including how journalism will flounder, history will be suppressed, China will rise, Trump will get away with his accused criminal acts, the judiciary will be riddled with mega loyalists, and much more. Well, the Atlantic editor-in-chief, Jeffrey Goldberg, said it wasn't a partisan stance. <laughs> I'm pausing for the laugh track that we would play if we had one. We believe that a democracy needs, among other things, a strong liberal party and a strong conservative party in order to flourish. Our concern is that the Republican Party has mortgaged itself to an anti-democratic demagogue, one who is completely devoid of decency, he went on to write. But it's not at all partisan, they suggest. So the panic continues. Uh, There was an interesting um, hearing earlier today. University presidents defended their open discourse when confronted on anti-Semitism during a hearing earlier today. The presidents of Harvard University, the University of Pennsylvania and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology or MIT emphasized the importance of free speech on campus when pressed during a hearing, a congressional hearing on how anti-Semitism was allowed to run rampant at their respective institutions, which have in recent years failed to defend the First Amendment on countless occasions in the name of protecting marginalized communities. So they have picked and chosen which issues upon which they are uh, standing um, flat-footed on open discourse. Well, addressing lawmakers in front of the House Committee on Education and the Workforce, uh, this morning, Harvard President Claudine Gay, she uh, condemned Hamas's brutal attack and the resulting anti-Semitism on American campuses, asked how anti-Semitism had become rife on her campus in particular. She emphasized that all points of view are tolerated at Harvard. Again, if we had a laugh track, we'd run it, which is ranked dead last in the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expressions or FIRE, their 2024 college free speech rankings. Uh, when we recruit faculty, we do so with the understanding that they are joining a community where uh, we honor, celebrate and nurture open discourse, both on the campus and in the classroom, Gay told the committee. Sally Kornbluth of MIT agreed, stressing the importance of valuing free expression and noting that her university allows professors to say what they uh, uh, they'd like to in the classroom. She also made clear that her belief that speech codes do not work, that the best way to combat speech with uh, which one disagrees is more speech, not limiting opinions deemed Uh, outside the bounds of acceptability. Uh, This focus on freedom of speech within higher education is new for these presidents. 70% of students at Harvard, uh, which Gay described as a bastion of intellectual discourse and expression, say shouting down a speaker to prevent them from speaking on campus is at least rarely acceptable, according to a FIRE study. And over half uh, report self-censoring on campus um, out of fear 
uh, for their reputations. I don't think it's an accurate representation of how Harvard treats free speech on campus, Gay said, when Representative Tim Wahlberg uh, confronted her on the uh, issue and mentioned the fire ranking. When Wahlberg asked how Gay could justify that claim, given the myriad of instances of faculty being sanctioned for speech and guests being disinvited for speaking on campus, she said that the university's commitment is not solely to free expression, but to ensuring that speech is exercised mindfully and with empathy for others. So again, shifting sand here. All of that to say um, they essentially sidestep the issue, uh, suggesting that the um, anti-Semitic speech on campus is tolerated uh, and when challenged really had very little to support their uh, rather wobbly stance. Uh, We're going to continue to take a look at some of the day's headlines, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You are listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, coming up later in the program, we're going to talk about the Supreme Court and their new code of ethics. Was it necessary? What's in it? We'll talk to Thomas Jipping from the Heritage Foundation in the second hour of today's program. FBI Director Christopher Wray testified Tuesday that the terror threat facing the United States has reached unprecedented levels since the October 7th attack on Israel. Senator Lindsey Graham asked Wray to describe the current threat matrix facing the United States at the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing. And he said this, what I would say that is unique about the environment that we're in right now in my career is that while there may have been times over the years where individual threats could have been higher here and there than they were um, than they may be right now. I've never seen a time where all the threats or so many of the threats are all elevated all at exactly the same time. End quote. And again, this is from the FBI director, Christopher Ray. So blinking red light analogy about 9-11. All the lights were blinking red before 9-11. Apparently, Graham continued. Obviously, all of us missed it. Would you say there's multiple blinking red lights out there? He asked. I see blinking red lights everywhere. Ray answered. He later told Graham that since the October 7th massacre in in, uh, Israel, when Hamas terrorists brutally murdered at least 1,200 Israelis, a veritable rogues gallery of foreign terrorists has called for attacks against the U.S. The threat level has gone to a whole nother level. That's a direct quote, whole nother level since October 7th, he emphasized. Well, the director's comments on Tuesday, they echo what he said in October when he warned Senate lawmakers, the actions of Hamas and its allies will serve as an inspiration, the likes of which we haven't seen since ISIS launched its so-called caliphate several years ago. Attorney General Merrick Garland said in October that reported threats against Jewish, Muslim and Arab communities in the United States spiked in the days and weeks after the start of the Israeli-Hamas war, the number of attacks on U.S. military bases overseas by Iran-backed proxy groups rose in November as well, with the Pentagon confirming at least 74 attacks on U.S. troops stationed in the Middle East since the 17th of October. The 74 attacks on U.S. troops have taken place in Iraq and Syria and began on the 17th of October by Iraqi militia, uh, militia groups. The attacks are reportedly linked to the U.S.'s support of Israel and its retaliation against the Palestinian militant group Hamas following the attacks in October. Well, the attacks do not include ballistic missiles being shot in the direction of U.S. military vessels, which uh, commanding officers on those ships have ordered to be shot down. At home, the FBI and Las Vegas police this week foiled an alleged lone wolf terror plot by a teenager who pledged support 
to ISIS. Well, on Friday, a 16-year-old suspect was arrested and federal agents found components to build an explosive device and terrorist propaganda, officials said. The arrest was made after the suspect allegedly made special media posts announcing his plans for lone wolf operations in Las Vegas against enemies of Allah. If there's ever a time to be praying, this certainly is that time, although it's always time to be praying. Interestingly, one headline I read earlier today, almost one in 10 college students threatened with punishment for their speech. Uh, Ignited by Hamas terrorist attacks against Israel, divisive domestic conversations about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict have driven a new wave of campus censorship. But the problem of um, stifled speech on campus for both students and faculty has been around long before October 7th. Adam Goldstein writes, according to the forthcoming survey, Developed by our organization, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, about one in 10 college students say that they've been threatened with disciplinary action or worse, actually disciplined for their speech. The survey, a 2022 survey of college faculty, yields similarly depressing results. About one in six professors report that they have been either threatened with punishment or actually investigated for their academic freedom or free speech despite the hearing earlier today in Washington. The common um, but rarely discussed thread linking this oppressive atmosphere on campus is college and university administrations. And as long as sensorial administrators have disproportionate power over higher education, this problem will continue, he goes on to suggest. And the student survey, which was conducted by College Pulse between the 5th of September and October the 20th, students answered questions about their experience with speech and their disciplinary process. 3% said that they had been punished for their speech. 6% said they had been threatened by punish or with punishment. Consider the scope of that uh, number extended out to the larger student population. Given the total undergraduate population of the country, that's well over a million students being threatened or worse by campus bureaucrats for their speech. It means a student is roughly as likely to face disciplinary censorship as they are likely to be left-handed. And what kind of speech can get you investigated, according to the study? For a New York University student, it was participation, uh, participation in a pro-Palestinian group. For a, pro, for a University of Pennsylvania student, it was expressing the opinion that the U.S. was right to have invaded Iraq. And for a Drake University student, it was simply being overheard by fellow students telling a professor about her mental health. The survey also revealed that students should watch what they say in their most private of spaces. Of those who were threatened or disciplined, a quarter faced punishment for speech in their dorm room. That disturbing focus on living spaces isn't unusual. For all of FIRE's 24-year existence, residential life administrators who run the dorms have been major enforcers of university speech codes. And while the situation is clearly very bad for students, for professors, it's even worse. Given that faculty uh, political diversity has never been lower, with some departments having left-leaning supermajorities and others having no conservative faculty at all, one would think that professors would not be targeted as often, and one would be wrong. Since 2014, uh, one uh, pair explains in their new book, The Canceling of the American Mind, we know of over 1,000 attempts to get professors sanctioned for their speech or research. About two-thirds of those attempts were successful, resulting in some form of punishment and almost 200 fired professors. Uh, this number dwarfs any period of U.S. history education 
uh, higher education history since the early 1970s, when the Supreme Court cemented freedom of speech as a right on college campuses and academic freedom as a special concern within that right. Well, facing a cancel culture that targets both students and faculty, how did administrators respond? With transparent uh, political litmus tests that enable and encourage the purge. More than half of the large universities in the country require diversity, equity, and inclusion statements, which are often vague and nebulously defined political, uh, political litmus tests, pressuring professors to adhere to the dominant ideology on campus. Uh, Wherever they appear, from student admissions to faculty post-tenure review, these requirements reinforce the ideological status quo, suppress viewpoint diversity, and increase the risk that what passes for curriculum today um, will be dogma tomorrow. Uh, One place those litmus tests um, appear to be In the hiring of more administrators, and make no mistake, at most schools, administrators, not faculty, decide what happens, when it happens, and how much to spend on doing it. Yale has a one-to-one ratio of administrators to students, and Harvard, um, with Harvard not far behind. At the U.S. News & World Report's top 50 schools in the country, there there were three uh, times as many administrators and non-instructional staff as there are faculty, according to a recent report from the Progressive Policy Institute. Once again, one might well think that hiring would slow down given the looming enrollment cliff, the demographic shift where the college age population shrinks due to lower birth rates, but that's never stopped colleges before. From 2014 to 2018, when enrollment and instructional employees declined, administrative staff grew over 6%. The surge in non-teaching positions is one of the primary reasons why the cost of educating a single student has gone up so dramatically over the past several decades. Well, making matters worse, many of the new administrators consider pol- uh, policing the speech of students and faculty part of their job. Indeed, DEI administrators have been involved in some of the highest profile cancellations, including federal judge Kyle Duncan at Stanford uh, this year, Harvard professor Carol Hooven last year, and University of Central Florida professor Charles uh, Negi in 2021. Well, it goes on from there and gives you something of a glimpse into what drives what goes on on college and university campuses all around the country and why. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break and we will return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. We're working our way through some of the top news stories of the last uh, 24, 48 hours. And we'll be talking with Thomas Jipping Coming up in the second hour, Senior Legal Fellow at the Heritage Foundation on the Supreme Court and the new ethics, a code of ethics they have recently um, signed on to. And in the Portland area, in the uh, uh, latter part of the program, we'll talk with Matt Dodds. He's the new executive director of Union Gospel Mission. So we'll uh, introduce him to some of you who have yet to, uh, to, to meet him. Well, several gold bars discovered by federal agents in Democratic New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez residence as part of a high profile bribery investigation can be traced to a violent robbery a decade ago. According to a sprawling indictment unsealed by federal prosecutors in September, Menendez and his wife allegedly played a role in a years long bribery scheme that involved the Egyptian government and local businessmen, including Fred Dibes, a wealthy New Jersey real estate developer. Prosecutors revealed they retrieved multiple gold bars from Menendez's home, which were allegedly used um, 
as payment in the scheme. At least four of the gold bars discovered by the investigators can be linked to dives, both because of their unique engraved serial numbers and thanks to court documents related to a 2013 robbery, which dives was a victim of. That should have been at the end there, but you get the idea. Uh, uh, in November of 2013, four assailants beat and robbed Dives at gunpoint in his Edgewater, New Jersey apartment, stealing 22 gold bars, jewelry and cash. Each gold bar has its own serial number, he told local investigators in 2014 in a transcript. Uh, they're all stamped. You'll never see two stamped the same way, he said at the time. Photographs released by the Department of Justice in September Showing the gold bars discovered in Menendez's home, for example, reveal one of the bars has a serial number that matches. Dives reported a gold bar with that same serial number stolen during the 2013 heist. And the, the uh, federal indictment notes that the serial number of the gold bars indicate they had previously been possessed by Dives. A court-authorized uh, search of the residence of Robert Menendez and his wife um, the defendants revealed, among other things, approximately two one-kilogram gold bars and nine one-ounce gold bars that had serial numbers indicating they had previously been possessed by Fred Dives, the defendant. The indictment states, police ultimately arrested and charged four individuals for robbing Dives in 2013, according to local media reports. Then in September of 2015, the suspects all pled guilty. They were ultimately sentenced to several months in prison. Meanwhile, since the federal bribery indictment was unsealed earlier this year. Menendez has repeatedly asserted his innocence and remained in the Senate. A Colorado father is suing the state's largest school district, claiming staff refused to let him display a straight pride flag alongside the the, uh, progress uh, pride flag on view throughout the children's Denver school. Nathan Feldman argues his children are being barred from exercising their freedom of speech in a case of viewpoint discrimination. His lawyer, Michael Yoder, blamed equity policies like Denver's for the overt sexualization of content in elementary schools nationwide. Progress pride flags and gender identity books geared toward young children encourage students to ask about Uh, them and foster one-sided conversation about inappropriate topics in the classroom, he said. Well, if uh, we had more parents like Feldman, then these policies would never have been rolled out in the first place, and they'd be teaching kids about math and science, Yoder argued. They wouldn't be uh, teaching about sexual orientation and homosexuality and having this flamboyant breeding ground for inappropriate content, end quote. Well, the conflict began in October of last year, 2022, when Feldman visited uh, Slavin's school, which is twin children, uh, were second grade students in attendance. He noticed dozens of problems. Progress pride flags displayed in classrooms and hallways, according to the suit. The progress pride flag is a redefined, a redesigned version of the rainbow flag with additional stripes to specifically honor transgender individuals and people of color. Feldman told his uh, children's teacher the flags were not inclusive of Slavin school children and the students there and only represented one viewpoint on the topic of sex, the suit claims. He asked if he could place an identity identically sized flag representing his children's view on the topic alongside the existing flags and alleged to, uh, allegedly offered an example of a straight pride flag. Well, the suit will move forward, will follow if details are made available. In other news, Panera Bread is now facing a second wrongful death lawsuit tied to its caffeinated charged lemonade. 
A lawsuit filed Monday alleges Panera's lemonade drink caused the death of a Florida man, a 46-year-old, after he went into cardiac arrest when he left the restaurant. According to the lawsuit, Brown consumed a lemonade with his dinner at the Panera Bread near his job in Florida and died while he was walking home. The lawsuit alleges that Brown had been drinking the lemonade for six days and was a member of Panera's Unlimited Sip Club, where he can order unlimited drinks. Across, According to Panera's menu, a large charged lemonade has 390 milligrams of caffeine, close to the FDA's 400 milligrams daily maximum intake. Panera's 30-ounce charged lemonade also contains more caffeine than both Red Bull and Monster Energy drinks combined. Panera released a statement about Monday's lawsuit saying, Panera expresses our deep sympathy for Mr. Brown's family. Based on, on our investigations, we believe his unfortunate passing was not caused by one of the company's products. We view this lawsuit, which was filed by the same law firm, as a previous claim to be equally without merit. Panera stands firmly by the safety of our products, end quote. Well, Donald Trump heads back to Iowa on Tuesday with just uh, under six weeks to go until the state's caucuses kick off for the Republican presidential nominating calendar. The former president, the commanding frontrunner in the GOP nomination race, as he uh, makes his third straight White House run, returns to sit down with Fox News primetime opinion host Sean Hannity for a town hall in Davenport, Iowa. The town hall, which will be uh, pre-taped in front of a live audience, will air at 6 o'clock Pacific time this evening. The town hall is being held on the eve of the fourth GOP presidential nomination debate, which will take place at the University of Alabama. Trump is once again skipping the debate and instead will be in Florida to headline a fundraiser for his campaign and aligned political groups. Hannity's town hall also comes less than a week after he hosted a well-watched and contentious debate between Republican Governor Ron DeSantis of California, uh, who is a uh, Trump uh, rival for the 2024 GOP nomination and Democrat Governor Gavin Newsom of California, who is a high-profile surrogate for President Biden's 2024 re-election campaign. Representative Dean Phillips says he plans to under-promise and over-deliver as he runs a long-shot primary challenge against President Biden for the Democratic nomination. Phillips, one of the wealthiest members of Congress, launched his campaign for the White House in late October. He's focusing most of his time and resources on New Hampshire, where the president's name won't be on the ballot in the state's unsanctioned Democratic primary on the 23rd of January. Do I have to win? No, absolutely not. Do I think I'm going to? No, I don't. I bet you've never heard that from a politician before. He said in answer to a question asked. Um, if he needed to finish in the New Hampshire primary to continue the presidential quest. Phillips acknowledged, I'm a long shot, a dark horse, and that's fun. That's fine, uh, because I feel what's happening in the country and what's happening right here. I think we will surprise, and from uh, there, it's a game on. He predicted that he was interviewed uh, as he was interviewed following a campaign event in this heavily Democrat city of New Hampshire's seacoast. Phillips, citing the 81-year-old president's age, has repeatedly criticized Biden for not passing the torch to the next generation of Democratic leaders and urged that a serious primary contender challenge the president for the party's nomination. Biden continues to suffer from underwater approval ratings among many Americans uh, and faces concerns not just from Republicans and independents, but also from Democrats over his physical and mental stamina. With no other major Democrats considered running against uh, uh, considering running against Biden, the multimillionaire businessman and co-founder of a gelato company turned three-term House Democrat from Minnesota, launched his own campaign. 
Well, Ukraine President Volodymyr Zelensky is expected to address the U.S. Senate today during a classified briefing. He's probably already done so. The briefing, which will include secretaries of defense, state and other top national security officials, came as the Biden administration has been pushing Congress to pass a $106 billion aid package for the wars in Ukraine, Israel and other security needs. Majority uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer on Monday highlighted the need for further assistance to Ukraine, saying Kiev's war effort to defend itself from Russia's invasion may grind to a halt without it. Office of Management and Budget Director Shalanda Young has also warned lawmakers that the U.S. will run out of funding to send uh, weapons and assistance to Ukraine by the end of the year. But Biden's $106 billion aid request is facing deep skepticism from GOP lawmakers. They're wary about continued support of Ukraine's war efforts at the expense of the U.S.-Mexico border. Many Republicans supportive of the funding are insisting on border policy changes to halt the flow of migrants as the condition for that assistance. Negotiations over the border security package broke down over the weekend as Republicans insisted on provisions that Democrats dismissed as draconian, such as pressing for Identif- um, uh, indefinite detention of asylum seekers and granting the executive branch power to shut down the asylum system. Talks are expected to resume this week. Congress already has allocated $111 billion to assist Ukraine, including $67 billion in military procurement funding, $27 billion in ele- economic and civil assistance, and $10 billion for the humanitarian aid. Young uh, wrote that all of it other than about 3% of the military funding had been depleted by mid-November. Meanwhile, the GOP-controlled House has passed a standalone assistant package for Israel as it fights the war with Hamas in Gaza, while the White House has maintained that all the priorities must be met. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news coming up at the top of the hour. And in our second hour, a conversation with Thomas Jipping. We'll talk about the Supreme Court and their new code of ethics. How new are they? Well, we'll get into that shortly. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You are listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Uh, coming up in our next segment, a conversation with Thomas Jipping. He is the senior legal fellow for the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. We'll talk about the Supreme Court and the new code of ethics they have uh, endorsed. We'll find out if they needed one and if they hadn't had one before this. Anyway, he'll put this all into perspective, given the pressure on the court from Congress. And if you're in the Portland area, in our final half hour, we'll talk with Matt Dodds. He's the new executive director of Union Gospel Mission. I want to give you an opportunity to get to know him just a bit, as he has assumed the mantle of leadership for that, uh, that ministry. Well, the senior climate reporter for Axios insisted on Sunday that world leaders must fly in rather than meet virtually in order to move the needle at the latest climate change summit. You know, we're all in great peril, but they they have to arrive at a location at some great distance. Well, the United Nations COP28 kicked off on Thursday with several prominent figures, such as John Kerry, the president's special climate envoy, flying to attend in Dubai, United Arab Emirates. And while world leaders and climate advocates have frequently been called out for their hypocrisy in using carbon-emitting planes, often private, to attend these gatherings, climate reporter Andrew Friedman, he defended it as necessary. To all those complaining about world leaders flying to attend a meeting on climate change, you're not saying anything original. Fact is, you can't do a Zoom call with 190 countries and face-to-face talks move the needle the most, end quote, Friedman said. 
writing on X. Well, many other social media users mocked Friedman's post and called out the hypocrisy in suggesting that world leaders cannot adapt to Zoom calls. It's not original because these elitist hypocrites have been at it for years. But good to see the problem is not their inability to follow their own lectures. It is... uh, us noticing. As for Zoom being off the table, a huge percentage of U.S. workforce managed to managed it during the pandemic. Red State writer Brad Slager, he wrote, conservative commentator Steve Guest wrote, um, Axios climate reporter thinks that the elites don't need to worry about their climate hypocrisy because they're polluting on their way to attend a climate meeting. This is the epitome of rules that for thee, but not for me. Fellow Republican communicator Matt Whitlock, he commented, moving the needle means unelected bureaucrats working with international elites to concoct absurd new regulations and ways to raise costs on everything in our lives for virtually no impact on climate change. Won't someone please think of the private planes flying climate oligarchs? The Spectator's contributing editor Stephen Miller joked, well, the annual Climate Change Summit regularly brings out criticism of world leaders advocating for stricter policies, while at the same time taking several trips on private jets. The Biden administration came under fire after several members of the cabinet, including the vice president, were confirmed to attend this year. A significant number of Biden bureaucrats will be traveling across the globe on the taxpayer's dime, all in an effort to advocate for these fossil fuel uh, initiative, rather anti-fossil fuel initiative. Senator John Barrasso wrote in a series of letters, they will, of course, utilize fossil fuels throughout their travels while ballooning uh, their own carbon footprint. Well, a former American ambassador has been arrested for spying on behalf of Cuba since 1981. And President Biden forced schools to accept woke gender ideology or see their funding pulled. Just the News reports that a new Biden administration rule forces schools to comply with progressive ideology on gender and sexuality or risk losing the federal aid for uh, free and reduced price school lunches. Huh. The school uh, lunch funding controversy began in May of 2022 with an announcement from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which handles federal help for school lunches. The USDA said at the time it would change its longstanding interpretation of uh, Title IX, the law broadly governing discrimination protections and education. USDA said it would expand its previous prohibition against discriminating based on sex to include discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. That change has major legal and taxpayer dollar implications, as in unprecedented reinterpretation of the statute, according to experts. And Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer is uh, forcing the state to undergo massive clean energy transition. Michigan is the latest state to embrace the self-destructive idea that it can completely wean itself from traditional energy sources. On Tuesday, November 28th, Governor uh, Whitmer, she assigned two laws that all but ensure that the state will replace its reliable sources of electricity production with unreliable ones such as wind and solar. The result, according to the new um, Mackinac Center analysis uh, will be skyrocketing utility bills and days long blackouts in the depths uh, in the depths of winter. Under the first law, Michigan must meet a 100 percent clean energy mandate by 2040, easily one of the most aggressive targets in the nation. And of course, she'll be long out of office by then. As a stepping stone, the state must come to uh, produce 60 percent of its energy from renewable sources by 2035, just 12 years from now. That's a fourfold increase from its current use of those sources for 15% of its energy needs, which took decades and countless dollars in taxpayer subsidies to achieve. Well, Spotify announced layoffs as the uh, as the year comes to a close. 
Uh, Spotify announced Monday that it will lay off 17 percent of its workforce, stating that such cuts were necessary to right size the costs of the company. The latest round of layoffs comes after the company hired many employees in 2020 and 2021, which was done to take advantage of the lower cost capital. The total number of employees who will be affected through the downsizing of employment is approximately 1,500, according to a memo from Spotify CEO Daniel Eck. Well, Disney's Florida Power has been exposed. A recently released independent audit of the Reedy Creek Improvement District found that Disney had effectively engaged in a bait and switch with Florida with the creation of the self-governing district. The auditors noted that Disney leveraged the RCID to give itself complete and unaccountable governmental power to maximize its profits at the expense of the public good. The audit came after Governor Ron DeSantis led the Florida legislature to eliminate the Disney Control District as he argued at the time that Disney should live under the same laws as everybody else because allowing a corporation to control its own government is a bad policy. Indeed, it was. Hardly anyone outside the special district knew about the scope and scale of the problems plaguing it, the auditors found. Complete and unaccountable government power was handed over to a private corporation, transforming a democratic institution into a private corporate monopoly. Thankfully, DeSantis' actions ended Disney's abuses. Well, while much of the U.N.'s annual climate conference in Dubai has amounted to little other than the same old climate change fear mongering, at least one rational and practical agreement came out of this year's event. Twenty two countries, including the U.S., pledged to triple their nuclear capacity by the end of 2050. Going nuclear is the only practical means of even coming close to the loudly stated goal of net zero carbon emissions. But up until this conference, the climate alarmists had maddeningly rejected expanding nuclear energy as a means to do so. Now, along with the U.S., Canada, France, South Korea, Sweden and the U.K. are among the 22 countries that signed the nuclear pledge, which will help reduce dependence on fossil fuels for energy generation. Even Joe Biden's climate czar, John Kerry, timidly endorsed going nuclear, stating we are not making the argument to anybody that this is absolutely going to be the sweeping alternative to every other energy source. No, that's not what brings us here. But we can't get to net zero by 2050 without some nuclear. Correction, you can't get there without a lot of nuclear. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, Thomas (laughs) Jipping, let's get that right. We'll talk about the Supreme Court and their new code of ethics. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, and in one of a pair of articles, Point Counterpoint on the U.S. Supreme Court's ethics, my next guest writes, we should be wary of the current campaign to exert control over the Supreme Court by creating a fake ethics crisis and smearing justices whose decisions may not reliably advance specific political interests. On November 13th, the court announced the adoption of its own code of conduct, a positive step unlikely to satisfy the critics. Well, joining us to talk about this battle over the ethics of the Supreme Court and the claim that they really have no standard by which they are required to uh, to follow, uh, Thomas Jipping joins us. He's Senior Legal Fellow for the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Let me first uh, ask you to comment on the premise that the Supreme Court is out of control. They are not held to any ethics standards, and therefore that must be imposed upon them from outside. It's not, and not only is it false, but those who are claiming it know it's false 
<clears throat> there are three categories of situations that are in this ethics category. One of them is financial disclosures. That's governed by a federal statute that has always applied to Supreme Court justices. The second is recusal, that is, a judge stepping away from a case that he would otherwise uh, be involved in. That, too, is governed by a federal statute that applies to Supreme Court justices. The third category is activities by judges outside the courtroom, things like speaking before groups and, and what have you. That's what the, quote, code of conduct covers. And the Supreme Court justices have followed the same code of conduct as lower court judges. So, you know, it, it's right there in the public record. So anybody that claims that they have no guidelines, standards, or accountability is lying. Well, let's go back to what really started this whole debate. It's a, an attempt to manipulate the court in ways that will produce the kind of outcome that the groups that oppose the current court that is um, weighted conservative uh, would like to see. What started this this claim uh, and the target of Justice Thomas, for example, suggesting that something dramatic needs to be done? Right. Well, we have a majority of justices right now uh, who take a traditional approach to interpreting and applying especially the Constitution. They take it as it's written. They don't try to turn it into something else. They don't uh, uh, start with who they want to have win and then make up something to make it turn out that way. And frankly, the left uh, has never been able to, to stand that approach to interpreting the Constitution. They want to politicize the courts, politicize the Constitution so that their agenda is more important than anything else. Well, thankfully, the founders of our country put in the Constitution that judges and Supreme Court justices, uh, they, they serve unlimited terms. Congress can't kick them out except by impeachment. And, you know, so they're going to make their decisions regardless. So what is the left supposed to do? They can't get rid of them. They serve until they want to leave. So they target the justices like Justice Thomas, like Justice Alito, who really are leading the majority of the Supreme Court in this a uh, principled traditional approach to interpreting the constitution they target them for basically the big smear they they want people to believe that uh these decisions which the left doesn't like well they must be corrupt and unethical see because he went fishing with a friend years ago and and he knows a billionaire and went on vacation with him or something like this it's a smear it's a smear of the justices who are doing what we need them to do, which is take the Constitution as it is, not follow any sort of political agenda, and decide cases impartially. I find it rather interesting because, particularly on the left, the, they have relied on the courts to do what they could not do by popular decision or uh, be willing to risk their own political future by suggesting things they know the public wouldn't support. So this is almost laughable if it wasn't so serious. Let's talk about the separation of powers and whether or not uh, Congress actually has the authority uh, under the Constitution to challenge the Supreme Court or impose some sort of standard upon it. This is uh, you, you nailed the key question here. Uh, the left is trying to mislead people. They know that, the, that most Americans don't know all the fine points and the ins and outs of the ethics rules and everything. But what they're trying to do is 
force upon the Supreme Court some kind of control, whether it's coming from Congress or whatever. But the key is our system of government has built into it what you referred to as the separation of powers. It's a limitation on government power. Each branch only has a certain amount of power, checks and balances in between, and each branch is supposed to stay in its lane. Congress does not have the authority to dictate to the Supreme Court the ethics standards that that justices have to follow as they do their judicial duties, any more than the Supreme Court could tell Congress how to do that. Uh, And that's that's an absolutely key principle, which which really limits uh, what can be done to federal judges, uh, and it leaves most of that to the judges themselves. The lower court judges police themselves primarily, and the Supreme Court's going to have to do it too. One more thing. The Supreme Court was created by the Constitution, not by Congress. Congress created the lower courts, but not the Supreme Court. And therefore, Congress doesn't have as much authority over the Supreme Court. They wish they did. The left wants them to. But that's not the way our system is designed. And so uh, there are very real limits. Uh, And thankfully, and and I'm I'm glad that there are, because the kind Mm -hmm. of smear campaign that they're uh, that they're about uh, is not going to be as effective because of it. Now, interestingly enough, you would imagine that the mainstream media would call them on this, recognizing that this is outside the bounds of what the Constitution allows Congress to do. And perhaps they're they're counting on the collective ignorance of the general public that doesn't understand uh, all of this. You mentioned earlier they know uh, the the code of conduct that the Supreme Court is under. It's the same code that uh, lower court judges are under as well. Uh, But somehow they're getting away with it. How do you explain that? Well, you mentioned the ignorance of the public. That's a huge problem. In our system of government, the the power comes from the people. You, You can't evaluate the performance of someone you've hired if you don't know what they're supposed to do. So that's a huge problem. Second... Most of the the mainstream media is liberal, and they've drunk from the same Kool-Aid as the left, the people who are driving this campaign. And third, they're lazy. I mean, I've been in this town for about almost 35 years interacting with the media, and uh, if they're not biased, they're probably too lazy to check out this stuff for themselves. It's not hidden. It's not secret. Uh, but the, the the media would rather reprint a, a press release from a left-wing group than do their own work. That's a bad combination. Yeah, it certainly is. Well, as mentioned in your article that I quoted a few moments ago, on November 13th, the court an- announced an- the adoption of its own code of conduct, uh, a positive step you suggest, unlikely to satisfy the critics. But is this an admission of guilt? Uh, is it uh, to try to assuage the critics? Why would the court do what they, really is unnecessary, but does at least give the appearance that they acknowledge um, that there needs to be some sort of uh, accountability? Well, the Supreme Court's in a tough situation. Uh, ju- the independence of the judiciary is a key part of our system of government, which means judges, they, they, don't, they don't, you know, get into the, the wrestling pit and duke it out with uh, the other branches of government. They don't go on the talk shows and defend themselves and all this kind of thing. So they're in a tough position. If you have a fake ethics campaign, if people are lying about, uh, the, you know, your integrity, but you're a judge, what are you supposed to do? 
so the, the court did two things. First, earlier this year, all nine justices signed a statement reminding everyone that they were already following the ethics code that the lower court uh, judges uh, follow hoping that that would be enough. It clearly wasn't, because the critics aren't about just telling the truth about the ethics situation. So on November 13, uh, the Supreme Court essentially took the same code that they'd been following before, and they put their own name on it. They took the lower court judge's code of conduct, and they changed a few words. They changed the word judge to justice and so on. Uh, They all put their name on it, and now they own, I guess, the same code of conduct that they've been following all along. I think it was a smart move. (laughs) Yeah. Well, let's hope that this will put an end to it. As you pointed out in your article, it's likely that the critics will be satisfied, but at least they've made a public display that may satisfy the general public. We'll continue to (laughs) to follow what happens next. Uh, Thomas Jipping, thank you so much for talking with us. I appreciate your insight. Glad to do it. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Again, Thomas Jipping is Senior Legal Fellow for the Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. If you're listening in the Seattle area, we are out of time. I want to thank Pedro Bartes, who is the engineer and producer in the Seattle area. If you're in Portland, coming up next, we'll talk with Matthew Dodds. Matt Dodds is the new executive director for the Union Gospel Mission. That's up next here in Portland. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Portland-only segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, many of you have heard the name Matt Stein. In fact, in our radiothon for the Union Gospel Mission just weeks ago, we had the opportunity to uh, introduce him to KPDQ listeners for the very first time, those of you who are not directly connected with Union Gospel Mission. Well, I'm excited to introduce you to the new executive director, Matt Stein. He's a lifelong Oregonian. He spent his career in ministry and non in the uh, nonprofit sector. He's made a deep impact on this city and will continue to do so in his new role. He joined UGM in late October to serve the most pressing and significant needs in our community and desires to see God powerfully move in the lives of the vulnerable and hard-pressed. And Portland has many of them. Well, he resides in the Sherwood area with his wife and their three children. He is an Oregon State beaver, which just attests to the fact that in Christ, we are all one. I'm a duck. He's a beaver. We're going to have a civil conversation civil conversation. Anyway, I am delighted to uh, reintroduce Matt Dodd and give him an opportunity to talk a little bit about his uh, new role here in the Portland area. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Georgine. Thanks so much for having me. Well, we had the opportunity to talk ever so briefly during the Radiothon just a few weeks ago, but I wanted to invite you back and give our listeners an opportunity to learn more about you so that we know how to pray for UGM and uh, for you mm-hmm. in your new leadership role. I know at uh, Union Gospel Mission, there were some changes that were unexpected with the previous uh, director. The Lord called Jason Christensen home, and uh, mm-hmm. we have been praying for leadership for some time, and we're so grateful that God answered our prayers with a local boy who's been in ministry here for a number of years. Give us a little bit of your background so our, our listeners can uh, once again get to know you a bit better. Absolutely. So I, I have been in ministry over 25 years and worked first with the youth. Um, I was significantly impacted in my own walk with Christ by the ministry of Young Life, 
when I was in middle school and high school, and I had a chance to go on staff with them um, after coming out of college. I did that for five years, and then I came up to a church, uh, Countryside Community Church, in the Sherwood area and served as a youth pastor there for another 10 years. So lots of time with a lot of youth and loved watching God do great things in their lives. Um, towards the end of that time, felt a calling out of uh, direct pastoral ministry and began working with African New Life Ministries, which works in Rwanda. And Georgina, I know you have been to Rwanda and you've yes. partnered with in the past. Yes. yes. Did, did you enjoy your trip to Rwanda? Oh, I absolutely enjoyed it. And I was so grateful for the quality of work that they do there. So, I, I, again, when I found out you were connected with them, that said a lot about the caliber of leadership we can expect. Oh, thank you. It's a powerful work being done in that country. And over time in these last number of years, I, I saw that just the growing need and, and really crisis in the greater Portland area. And my heart began to um, just be drawn towards something more local, um, more home-based. And God opened up the doors and I stepped in about a month ago with Union Gospel Mission. Well, you've uh, you've sort of jumped in with both feet in the middle of a difficult season here in our area. And I know that uh, houselessness and uh, poverty is a major issue in this community. Uh, how did you know that God called you specifically to minister at this time in this place? Yeah, as you, as you watch and as we all encounter, I think through the pandemic um, and then afterwards, um, watching the scenes on television and then going downtown at times um, and just seeing um, a lack of peace, uh, a, mm-hmm. a place that we didn't recognize from growing up, coming to the big city all the time. Um, it just didn't seem like the Portland that I knew growing up. And I would watch that. I would watch people on the streets and know that God loves them, uh, know that God has a heart for them, that this is not the best for them. And so as I prayed, I've actually always been involved in different homeless um, causes over the years, but in just informal, simple ways. Um, as I prayed and I watched, and then I saw the opportunity to come join an incredible team. Um, Union Gospel has been ministering in this city for almost 100 years, 97 years. And to know they're on the front lines, to know they're out meeting people, befriending people, building relationships, providing basic supplies, and then encouraging them to go into life change recovery programs. That was so attractive to me to see God at work in the lives of people in very clear ways that they were once homeless, um, many battle addiction, and now they we have 30% of our staff are employed from former life change recovery program participants. Oh, that says um, so much about the effectiveness of the ministry. Absolutely. I mean, they have, they've moved forward. Now they're blessing others. They've turned around and their heart is, I mean, their passion is incredible. So to, to see that and to know that I could be, play a part in that and to also join with the great Christian organizations, secular organizations in the area to see um, how can we make a real difference? Because we all know that the problems are significant in our city. Yeah, I know that um, in the Portland area, many of us are are disappointed. There are a lot of people who are frustrated, maybe even angry. But I'm grateful for the ministry of Union Gospel Mission that gives us an opportunity not to just look on from a distance, but to roll our sleeves up and to minister to those who are on uh, on the streets or who are living in our community. The the uh, the poor that we may not even recognize because they live next door and we don't we don't witness the struggles that they face. What do you see as the greater uh, greatest challenges moving forward with Union Gospel Missions outreach into our city? 
Yeah, from what I've seen so far, I think that one, um, making sure that the on-ramps that people know that the people experiencing homeless understand that there are many great options, and and we we are certainly one of them, that do have space for them, that they can come in that door. Right now, we're we're battling um, people deciding to to stay out at times, and this isn't everyone, but it's definitely some that that are saying right now that the new change of direction isn't what they are looking for, and we want them to know that it is possible to make that change, um, that, that we've got a warm bed for you, that we've got people to surround you. Really, a lot of people experiencing homelessness um, can miss the community um, mm-hmm. that just can surround them and encourage them and help them on their journey, which is which is often what is needed. And so we're experiencing just that challenge of making sure that people know that the resources are there and they're stepping into them. I also think that um, we, you're familiar with our Women's and Children's Life yes. Change Program. That's not located downtown. That's out in Beaverton. Um, we are working to build a new facility and fill it full with women and children that oftentimes you will not see. Like you mentioned, they're they're hidden uh, more from the community than what you might see in downtown Portland. And so finding, identify, working with churches, working with social services to let them know we have places for them. We want to bring them in. That new change is possible. Yeah. Well, I'm excited about the expansion of that uh, that ministry, because, as you pointed out, so many of these women and their children are invisible in our community. They're not in places where you would necessarily uh, witness their need, but they are here among us. And um, this outreach has a tremendous potential to not only bless these women, but their their children and generations uh, to follow. Uh, how can we um, how can we pray for and come alongside UGM as we approach Christmas? When you were here uh, just a few weeks ago, we were talking about and anticipating Thanksgiving, which, of course, is now behind us. But Christmas, yeah. the holiday season continues. How can we come alongside um, UGM in your efforts to minister to those in our community through this part of the holiday? Absolutely. You know, first, we do have wonderful volunteer opportunities where if someone wants to come um, and serve a meal prior to Christmas, if they want to go out on our search and rescue team, which is a group of people with staff that go out and provide basic needs for those in encampments and build bridges of relationship, they can come and volunteer. We love to do it around the holidays. The Thanksgiving, by the way, Georgine, was so fun as we provided both the baskets Um, to the surrounding community and then huge meals on Thanksgiving Day. We will do similar for Christmas. So you can volunteer. You can support our efforts to do that. You know, that first gift of a meal often is the first step for someone to really take that long journey of life change. And so people can support what we're doing. It's uh, $2.33 provides a meal for people at the holidays here. And then the other thing prayer-wise is just lift up those that are volunteering and the staff that are down here. It is, it's a heavy work. It's hard work. And we can use the prayers that God would just continue to open doors to build new relationships with neighbors that are experiencing homelessness and also favor in this city as we continue to expand our work. Um, we need God's help to open those doors. So those prayers are so welcome for our staff and our volunteers. Again, we're talking with Matt Dodds. He is the executive director of Union Gospel Mission. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to continue our conversation and then wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 
KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Matt Dodds, the new executive director of Union Gospel Mission. And I would like to encourage you to pray for him as he uh, undertakes this new role. I'm not asking that because I'm I'm concerned that he's not up to the task, but because I know the, the nature of the task. He needs, uh, as does the organization, all of us to come alongside and just pray that not only he would be equipped to move forward in leadership, but that we would have a vision for the future of this ministry, and we would be prepared to come alongside as needed uh, to support those in our community who are struggling uh, in a variety of ways. You know, you've mentioned Life Change a couple of times. That is such a tremendous ministry that has a great track record. For those who are unfamiliar with Life Change, can you just describe that uh, for us? Yeah. um, Our Life Change program starts with a 30-day introductory period where people are just getting to know the staff and the program and the the schedule that we keep. Then once they come through that introductory, we call that the new life period, they commit to um, the better part of a year. It's always at will. They could leave any time. But if they go through a year, they're going to get counseling. They're going to get discipleship, of course, shelter and great food on the way. They're going to get an education. We run great classes through the journey, as well as um, addiction recovery classes curriculum that we take them through. And again, like I've shared, community that is coming together, men downtown, women and their children at our Beaverton location, coming together, helping each other on that journey, a whole cloud of witnesses surrounding them saying, you can do this. And they also provide volunteer experiences here at the mission. They serve um, in the kitchen. They serve uh, in a variety of places. We have a thrift store, and they're doing some work recovery and work um, uh, training, too, along that journey to prepare them for their life after the mission. At the one-year mark, they can decide to graduate then, or they can go a second year. And when they go that second year, often we see the odds increase of uh, a successful launch, and we also provide aftercare for them to help them with their jobs, their license, a variety of supplies that they need to get started in the new life. I've heard so many tremendous testimonies from men and women who have gone through the program who have experienced the kind of transformation that only Christ can produce in a life. And it's exhilarating to see from start to finish what God does when his people gather around and um, encourage them in, in his word and see that uh, the, that life change. Another um, ministry that I'm very impressed by is the search and rescue, um, where Union Gospel Mission not only um, is available for people to come to them, but you actually go out to those who are in remote places that may not uh, be inclined to come or could not come. Um, talk a bit about Search and Rescue. Yeah, and so in 2016, um, they began the Search and Rescue program where staff and volunteers, and sometimes our, our men from Life Change, go out in a van. They go to visit different encampments where you'll find people experiencing homelessness, They come with hygiene supplies, coffee, water, um, some food, sometimes clothes, and try to meet the needs that they can, but also establish the relationship to say, hey, we're out there, we're thinking of you. Um, We want people to know that we have an overnight shelter. Um, Central Nazarene Church opens up their doors. It's beautiful. Um, November through March. 
they open up their sanctuary so that 40 to 45 people a night can get warmth shelter through the night. And so our search and rescue is out there letting people know about that, letting them know about our life change program, and again, helping them to know that there are resources all over this community for those that are needing them. Yeah, I'm so grateful that during the holidays you give us opportunity um, to remember those among us who are struggling. But beyond the holiday, day after day, week after week, when we perhaps have moved on, we're thinking about other things. Union Gospel Mission, its staff and volunteers are continuing to minister in our community, extending the invitation to the rest of us to come alongside and be a part of what God is doing here in the Portland metro area as well. And I would really encourage our listeners, if you're not familiar with uh, UGM's work, uh, check them out online. It's an organization I can vouch for. They've been faithfully serving in this community for decades. They have earned the respect of um, our city, our city officials. They've earned the respect of uh, other organizations in this community and certainly are a reflection because the gospel is right in the middle of those initials, Union Gospel Mission. Um, they have reflected the, the heart of Christ uh, in this area. What's the best way for our listeners if they are interested in maybe I'd like to give to UGM or maybe I'm looking for some ministry opportunity. How might I volunteer? What's the best way for them to connect with UGM? Yep, our, our website's going to be the right place, ugmportland.org. Gives you both opportunity to give to specific areas or generally helping advance the work. We also have our volunteer opportunities listed there, and you can sign up. You can do it one time and check it out and learn. You can also become a recurring volunteer, which we have many great people doing that. Mm -hmm. And really, our prayer, Georgine, is that more and more people and, and more and more churches around the Portland area will be able to send people in to lean in and say, we're going to link arms together and do our best to address what the need that is right here on the streets in front of us. Yeah, yeah. Well, Matt, you are a husband. You are a father of three. You're the head of a uh, a large and thriving ministry here in the Portland metro area serving uh, the poor. How can we pray for you and your family in this season of service? Yeah, I would appreciate prayers for just the journey of adjustment into my new role, um, the chances to speak on behalf of those in need. Um, also, you know, children-wise, I've got teenagers. I've got middle school. I've got high school, and they're wonderful, and they're they're adjusting to Dad's new role. So I'd appreciate prayers for that and my wonderful wife as she helps them in the journey when I'm not around quite as much as I've been. Yeah, yeah. Well, please thank them on our behalf for lending you to us because— uh, I know that when you make a commitment to serve, that means the rest of your family, and in many ways, they're also serving. So we appreciate your wife and your kids who are willing to share you with the rest of us to minister to our community. And uh, sometimes that can be a challenge for kids as they're growing up when dad's uh, ministering elsewhere. So um, I know I will make the commitment to pray, and I know others who are listening will do the same. Well, Matt, let me just say how much I appreciate your willingness to step up and assume this leadership role. Uh, know that the Christian community supports you, that many of us will be praying for you, and we are excited to see what God is going to do in the days ahead under your leadership, and uh, we will rejoice with you um, because we know um, there are good things ahead. Georgian, thank you so much for your prayers and your support. You have been a wonderful advocate for Union Gospel Mission. And I just want to say Merry Christmas as we roll into December here. Yeah, Merry Christmas to you, too. All right. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. 
All right. Thanks so much. Have a great day. You too. Again, Matt Dodds is the new executive director of Union Gospel Mission. Many of you were praying for Jason Christensen, who had been the executive director for a season. The Lord called him home, and uh, we've been uh, waiting and praying for the new leader. And uh, Matt Dodds has stepped up into that role, and we're so grateful Uh, that he has filled the void. So do check out Union Gospel Mission. Well, we are out of time. I do want to thank James Blend for producing, Dave King for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.